right? You can still have a business without being a great marketer, but you certainly won't be number one. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 49, and today's guest is Ryan Babenzine. Ryan is currently the co-founder and CEO of Jolie Skincare. He's a serial entrepreneur, investor, and advisor. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Babenzine, entrepreneur, business advisor, and investor. Ryan is currently the founder and CEO of Jolie Skin, a beauty wellness brand that addresses the purity of your water for better skin, hair, and well-being. Ryan also founded Greats, the world's first digitally native footwear brand, which exited to multi-billion dollar footwear company Steve Madden in 2019 after just five years. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Good to see you. Nice to see you too. And, uh, you know, we're recording this uh, the first few days of, of 2022. So happy new year. And uh, unfortunately, I, I thought I didn't have to start my shows asking about the health and wellness of my guests, but I think I need to yet again. Uh, how are you and your family doing? Yeah, we're good. Thanks for asking. Although I did have, uh, I do have a very unique story. I was war rooming uh, the weekend before launch of Jolie and uh, my co-founder Arjun and I and a third employee. So we went up, you know, to, to my house and we were sort of the first you know, 48 hours before launch, just getting all the stuff ready. Monday morning he comes out, Monday is the day we launched and he comes out of his bedroom and he's wearing a mask. And I'm like, we, we had not been wearing masks in my house. And I, what are you doing? He goes, well, I just found out that the woman I had dinner with on Thursday has COVID. So we uh, rushed back to the city. He got tested. He had COVID. I got tested. I did not have COVID, but I have a newborn baby. So I wound up driving back upstate and having had it isolate for five days uh, to make sure that I did not have COVID and I did not get it. So that's the, the long story short. Um, still doing well. And we're just staying, uh, st staying focused. So those five nights were likely the uh, only five nights in the last 14 weeks that you slept through the night. <laughs> That's right. It wasn't such a bad thing being isolated at that point. <laughs> All right, well, we won't tell <laughs> your wife best, about I got, that. I got the best sleep of 2021 those five days. Oh, good. So, you know, we talked about New Year's. Are you a New Year's resolutions guy? I'm not a resolutions guy in the traditional sense, although I do like to reset my body physical uh at the beginning of the year and sort of train my way into the rest of the year so i, I don't make a lot of resolutions but i do cut out alcohol for the month of january and over the last couple of years i have been doing that and it, i reset my brain and my body to remind myself how how important health and fitness is I guess that only matters if you don't make up for the loss of January the other 11 months out of the year. 
Right. I go really hard and damage myself <laughs> in the remaining 11 months. Uh, well, I, which is generally what happens starting around May. But uh, for the first few months, I'm pretty diligent. So, you know, we often talk at the beginning of, of these shows uh, about people's first stories, because I find so often that what they ultimately do as a, an adult, you know, in your case, entrepreneur, uh, there are some things in their earlier life that might have been foreshadowing what they would do uh, as they got older and, and created a career. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and kind of your first story. Well, I grew up in Long Island uh, on the south shore of Long Island, Suffolk County relatively small town, East Islip. If anybody listening knows the South Shore, I was always into things that were sort of different and not as mainstream, uh, whether that was starting skateboarding early or surfing or I did the traditional things, but I always, I always like to find my own path. I started mountain biking early. I love to sort of go off and, you know, the road less traveled, if you will. And I've been that way my, my whole life. My parents got divorced when I was eight. I think that had a lot to do with it. We sort of had a, we had to figure out how to survive, really. I, my mom became a working mom. She was never home during the day. And so while other kids were home eating cookies and milk and their mom was sort of sitting around, my brother and I were just out roaming the neighborhood. Not that it was dangerous, but it was you know, we had, we had some free time. We were latchkey kids. And um, I think that made me really curious about almost everything. And I still have that curiosity today. I think it started then. Uh, and I like to beat my own drum, if you will, which I think makes great entrepreneurs. I think, entrepre you know, I think that's why I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm a horrible employee. Uh, I'm not, you know, I've had jobs for years, but uh, I found that I was much better suited looking forward and trying to do new things as opposed to doing things uh, like everybody else. And I find groupthink to be incredibly boring and, and uh, like like watching paint dry. Uh, it's funny. Um, I think I mentioned to you this is episode forty nine or so, and I probably have had you know a third of of that you know have been people like yourselves who have started a company, and I've had more than one um, explain like you just did that you were you know you wouldn't be a good employee. I've had a few tell me they were unemployable. <laughs> and hence <laughs> they went off and and developed you know their own businesses so i hear you Let, let's we'll we'll talk you know about your earlier career but you know so you've you've started these two businesses maybe more you'll tell us one greats and and we'll want to hear about that and then their current business jolie it's it struck me a little bit when i saw that you were starting the skincare brand after a shoe brand it feels like, you know, most entrepreneurs kind of stick to their knitting in a particular vertical, you know, and they put a twist on it. You're obviously in two different verticals. How did that come about? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and the, the idea for Jolie actually came to me many years ago while I was still managing greats and I was on vacation thinking about what would I do after greats if I ever sold it or left it. Uh, at the time, it, that wasn't on the roadmap that, we, you know, we weren't in discussion to sell the business, but I, I was just sort of pondering on vacation, like, what would I do after if? And I started to think about the lessons I had from greats. And I, I, on this holiday, I came up with three prerequisites that if I was going to start a business, it would have to have these things. And they were, the product would cater to vanity or vice, 
I believe that vanity and vice drive many of our decisions in consumption. I ultimately chose vanity because I'd rather do good than bad. The second prerequisite was the product would have no sizes because when you launch a footwear brand, you realize what a pain in the ass it is to sort of manage skew count and fit and the host of challenges that come with that, particularly in e-com managing, you know, return rates and misunderstandings of fit communication. And the third prerequisite was the product would have a high frequency of use habitual if possible, because changing consumer behavior is very difficult. And those prerequisites came from my experience at Greats of the really hard things that building a footwear brand had. And I said, all right, well, if I'm going to start another company, I don't want to deal with those challenges. There'll be others, but let's avoid those. I came back from that trip, put it on a whiteboard. We looked at it for years. And then in the shower one day, I, uh, as many of us have great ideas in the shower, I realized that the water in New York and all over the country, frankly, is more contaminated than we realized. And that I was going to start a beauty wellness company that purifies your water for better skin, hair, and well-being. Now, it is true that building a beauty wellness company where the first product is a shower is vastly different from a product sense. Uh, than a footwear brand. But in the end, it's a consumer product. And I am a creature of habit. I am an observer. And I believe that everybody showers, whether you have a one-step routine or a 10-step routine, use drugstore products or luxury skincare. If your water is contaminated, and sadly, most of it is, then you're sort of foiling in your investment in your process and your product. And we need to solve this problem that most people didn't even know they had. That's an entrepreneur. So it's different in that it's not in the same category, but I think entrepreneurs have an ability to see where there's opportunity and potentially create a business around it. That's great. Now, to be fair, the water may be contaminated in New York, but it makes the best bagels. It, you know, this is true. It makes the best basils and I would argue the best pizza, neither pizza of which dough. should be yep. the proxy for your skin and hair or health. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's true. They make great bagels and, and, and great pizza. You know, going back to uh, your early career, um, would you, if you were going to classify yourself, you know, were you a marketing guy to get started? You know, you spent time at Puma. Maybe talk a little bit about that gig. Yeah, I mean, my career in footwear started at Puma, and then I went to K-Swiss, and then I went to Boast. So, and I'm sh- sort of shortening the timeline there. But yes, I was in, I was a marketing guy at both Puma and K-Swiss. And, you know, my job was to sort of identify trends, understand behavior, understand what's cool. How do you get, how do you create relevancy for, for a brand, which I think has morphed in the tactics over the last 15, 20 years. But in the end, it's a group of people that believe that this is better than that. This brand is better than that brand because of some reason. And, and I've always done that. That's where I've earned my career, identifying things that make people respond, where they put their hard-earned money on the table and, and buy something. There's many, many ways to do that. 
you can talk about relevancy, you can talk about content, you can talk about distribution, and they all have to be firing well to, to create a brand that's meaningful. But in the end, the greatest brands in the world are, are good at marketing. They just don't get to the top by not, right? You can still have a business without being a great marketer, but you certainly won't be number one. And so the time that you spent at, at Puma and K-Swiss and Boast, and I wasn't familiar with uh, the Boast business, but um, I believe you exited uh, that uh, to Tommy, correct? Yeah, yeah. So Boast was a really short, shorter run in terms of my career, but a really cool experience. And Boast was a legacy American tennis brand that was created in the late 70s, or sorry, early 70s where the original founder wanted an American tennis brand that represented the American spirit. And if you thought about tennis back then, it was this sort of all white, both literal and physical, where, you know, you played at a tennis club, you had to wear white. And if, you know, France had Izod or Lacoste, uh, England had Fred Perry, and America didn't have that. And he felt like, I need a brand that represents McEnroe and and Connors who are like attitude and amazing and fuck you, they're rock star style. So he created Boast. He was a, a, an all-American squash player at Cornell. And then he became a tennis pro at a, a really fancy country club in Greenwich, Connecticut. So the heritage of it was super rooted in, in really old money type world. But he, he not he made a nod of that American attitude. So he used a Japanese maple leaf as the logo on the left chest, which looked like weed, it looked like a marijuana plant. So you had this marijuana plant looking logo that became the prep Northeast icon for like wealth and insiders. So the Boast archives are, you know, there's pictures of, George Bush Jr. before he was president, you know, on a yacht somewhere wearing a Bose shirt. All the tennis teams at the Ivy Leagues had their uniforms wearing Bose shorts and shirts and squash teams. So it was a really interesting business that grew through the early 80s and then prep style went away and it sort of, it sort of went nowhere. It just vanished. Uh, well, somebody that I knew bought that brand. I, I joined them to grow the business. And the position was, let's bring back this American heritage brand and, and sort of position it more like a streetwear brand and leverage heritage and cool. You know, I was there for a year and realized that I, I, I had been toying around with the idea of grades to, to launch grades. I couldn't do both. So I left. Tommy Hilfiger bought the business uh, and I launched grades. All right. So perfect segue. So you launch greats, you set up shop in Brooklyn. Uh, what was the attachment, if anything, to Brooklyn? I grew up there, so it's uh, interesting to me. Where did you grow up in Brooklyn? Bensonhurst. Okay. So we moved back from California. I had been living in California for many years. And with Boast, I was commuting. So I was spending time in New York, but primarily based in California. With greats, it was really about the footwear industry and whatever was left of fashion still was in New York and at that at that point in late 2013 when I was setting it up. And you know, I knew it was going to be very, very hard to start this company and I needed to get as many tailwinds as I could. 
So I felt like living in New York was going to allow me to cater to the fashion, the editorial size of fashion, the editorial side of the sneaker culture, stylist, et cetera. So I moved back to New York and that's why we launched Grapes. Brooklyn was, was and has continued to become sort of the epicenter of culture within New York. Definitely was in 2014 where, you know, people from around the world were coming to New York and going to Williamsburg. And that's why we went there. I just thought, hey, this is a developing community that youth is focused on. And now if you go to North 6th Street in Williamsburg, there's a Nike store. There's a new Patagonia store about to open. Birkenstock took the old great store that never got to open because COVID hit. Garrett Light Sunglasses, the Essendurga, the like cosmetic brand. It is just the, the street of cool brands. So seven years later with two COVID years, it is now one of the better shopping streets in all of the New York area. And the way that Abbott Kinney developed in Venice, California. And when I was at K-Swiss, I put the K-Swiss office which, which I ran, which was sort of the entertainment marketing office off of Abbott Kinney in 2009. And at that point it was bubbling, but it wasn't the best shopping street in America as it was later named by GQ. But that was my job. My job was sort of to be where the wave was about to start, not where the wave crashed and not where the wave was so far away that you couldn't get any value out of it. We had to sort of be right there when it when it peaked up, um, and that's what I felt Brooklyn was. So that's why we put Grace there. Yeah, um, in the days that I grew up, uh, obviously Williamsburg was not as you just described. <laughs> it was uh, a, a very very different community then. Yeah, now now it's filled with Range Rovers and baby strollers. <laughs> Uh, well, there were a lot of baby strollers in those days, but it was a different, <laughs> uh, a different ilk. So, so yeah, the, so it, it, if you could describe to folks, you know, the greats brand, you know, what are the few words that come to mind? Well, we were digitally native and we were focused on offering a premium made in Italy piece of footwear at a value price. And it was sort of the beginning or the early days of D2C where everybody was sort of disrupting the middleman and that's how they were able to sell direct and sell it for a better price, whether it's glasses or you know, sheets or mattresses. We never said, we didn't believe in retail. We just thought that wholesale was a really difficult business, especially then to scale in as a startup. And the, and the reason was, most of the stores would pay late they, or some not at all. They were going out of business faster than they could you know, figure out what to do. And I didn't want to be in the collections business, right? It, it's a very difficult, uh, as a startup, it's very difficult. If you don't get paid on time, your cash flow gets thrown off. You just, they're out of business. We're direct. You can sort of manage your own growth. So we launched direct. We had always intended to go into retail and we probably would have gone in sooner. Our first real partnership was with Nordstrom and it was quite successful. What, what our challenge was in the beginning, at least the first couple of years, was we just never had enough inventory to manage our own demand. Uh, we couldn't make it fast enough and we should have raised more money so we could have managed inventory growth. Um, but we couldn't get into retail either because if I can sell 10,000 units of this directly, why would I 
give half of it to a wholesaler at half the price. So that was our reason, but it wasn't, it was a huge lesson. Uh, I should have figured out how to solve the capital issue much sooner because we would have had a much bigger business. You know, it's again, back to the conversations with um, the entrepreneurs, you know, and you talk to them about, you know, the, the lessons that they've learned or the biggest challenges that they had. And so many times this whole issue of financing and fundraising, you know, geez, I didn't know how laborious it was going to be or how difficult it was going you know, to be. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. It sounds like you felt that too. I'm not to say, not to say that it was easy, but it wasn't. It, you're just unaware. You sort of like get caught up. All of a sudden, you're you know you're selling thousands of pairs of shoes overnight, and now you're focused on foot on making sure that's working, as opposed to like I need to go out and raise capital. Now, looking back, if I had sort of established a team that would have been able to manage certain things, I would have had the mind space to go. Wait a second, let's go out and raise more money, and then we can do this differently. But you, I didn't. It was really my first from zero to somewhere startup. And those lessons are being applied to, to Jolie. Like, you, you know, that you learn once you go through that gauntlet, you have so much knowledge that your, your chances of success the second time around are greater. And I didn't want to waste the lessons, the, the hard earned lessons <laughs> of the first one and not apply it to a second one. So that's why we're starting Jolie. What, what do you make about each few years? You know, there's things that become, you know, kind of the hot buttons for particular industries and, and seemingly over, let's say the last five years, uh, you hear more and more about sustainability and circularity, um, especially in the apparel and in, in the shoe space. What do you make of, of all of that? And, and, you know, will that will for, for those that are really trying to make a difference and not just have it be a marketing play, um, will we be able to be successful in having the consumer think more about sustainability? I do. At least I hope so. I mean, um, I think it's really critical for us as consumers to be more mindful and thoughtful about the things we buy, how frequently we buy them, and how, uh, I'll say, responsible the products are. Because, you know, as a maker of products, you're going to do some damage to the earth. I think the brand's job is to sort of do the least amount of damage you can. And that's the best you can do. Greats was very early on this. We we felt that the best thing you can do for sustainability is to buy something that one is trend resistant and two lasts a long time because you can buy an electric car, but if you got rid of your car that was perfectly fine, you might be doing more damage than you know, the, the amount of energy it took to build the new car is greater than, so that was sort of the thesis. It's like, well, look, if you have a pair of sneakers that you can wear for five years, that's better than having a pair that you buy for five months, that you wear for five months. And that's true. So we were early on that. And not just from a material sense, which we started using a lot of recycled materials and still do, but from a wearability sense, like, does it resist trend or is it disposable in that, like, you can only wear this for a few months and then the trend is gone and you, you know, you, you sell it. So I do believe that this is really important. Our earth is in uh, a challenged state. It's certainly not going to fix itself or repair itself. So we, we sort of have to contribute to helping it. And I think generationally there are consumers that are demanding it and I think it will start to age up. So 20 year olds are, they consider it, I think pretty frequently, no matter what they buy. 
and that'll get older and older and older. And um, hopefully brands do the right thing. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. Uh, we talked about it at the top of the show. So you exited uh, uh, Greats, was sold to the Steve Madden uh, company in, in 2019 with whatever you're comfortable talking about. Um, how, how does a, a deal like that get put together? Are you thinking, geez, I want to exit? Or does a, a, a company come and, and seek you out and say, you know, look, you're a great fit for us because we can help you grow? How does something like that come together? I actually had met Steve and Ed, Ed Rosenfeld, the CEO of Steve Madden, years before. It was sort of a, hey, we like what you're doing. We'd love to learn more type of thing, you know, sort of peers in the industry. And from, you know, I just liked both of them and we kept an open dialogue, uh, not with any agenda of like, hey, I'm selling you the business, but we just kept an open dialogue. Fast forward to, we were raising capital and, you know, it was sort of, we can raise, we can raise capital or we can just sell the business. And ultimately there was a lot going on. There was a ton of chaos. And I just decided I want to get, I want to get out of this business. So we sold the business and that's how that came to be. But it wasn't, there had been a prior relationship, not with the agenda of selling to them, but that relationship I think helped accelerate the transaction. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, as you know, and my listeners know, I spent seven years at Steve Madden working for Ed and, uh, you know, at some moment in time, I remember sending him an email and said, Hey, have you ever seen this business called greats? I think it would be great. No pun intended, you know, for our company. And he's like, and he sends me back, you know, a little smiley face. Yeah. We know all about them. Um, so, you know, they, you were obviously on their radar, uh, way before I, I, I well, or out. maybe you're the reason that we sold to Steve. Maybe you sort of sparked the, uh, the internal fire. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think I can take credit for that one, but so, our all right, so you you uh, you sell the business, and now you start Jolie. So give us a, a quick high level, Jolie, where you are in in kind of the maturity of the business. Well, maturity is we are not. Uh, we, we just launched December sixth, so we are uh, a newborn in, in in startup terms. But we we really spent the last year developing the product, uh, the branding, the website. Uh, and it, it took about a year. I, I'd say that's right. A little bit delayed because of COVID, but not, not too bad. We launched December 6th and we have quickly proven market fit. And, you know, all of the metrics that you would measure uh, as, a, as an early stage startup, we are checking those boxes with, and now have a high degree of confidence that this is a product and a company that can scale. So solving the problem of water, uh, which is which we believe is essential to your overall beauty, wellness, health, which, you know, it's something, if you remember the things I said before, prerequisite, you know, high frequency of use, we all shower every day. We just didn't realize or still don't realize for most of us 
how many contaminants are in the water and what it does to your skin and your hair. So we solve that problem. We also educate around that problem. We, we licensed, and you could really call it our first product. It's a free water report. We licensed the National Water Database in North America, which is public information that must be provided by state uh, annually. It's just like most things in the government, it's uh, wonky, if you will. It's tough to get access to, even though it's public. It's out there, you can get it. It's just hard to find. They make it really difficult. So we made it really easy. If you go to jolieskinco.com and you put in your name, you put in your email and your zip code and we'll send you a free custom water report based on where you live. It's, it happens in seconds and it's a pretty easy education. Here are the contaminants that are in your water. Again, this is state provided information, not Jolie created information. Here's the information, here's what's in your water. Here are the multiples they are over recommended values. Jolie can help take some of those out. Sounds like something I do not want to know. No, you probably don't. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss, as they say. You know, sadly, the EPA is, is sort of a coin-operated agency. They they are not protecting the people the way they were designed to. And that isn't just in the case of water. It's It's pretty much everything. There are many, many things out there that are not in the best interest of the people. I think our society has... Uh, in many, for many justifiable reasons, has stopped trusting many of the institutions, whether it's government or the church, people have now challenged these institutions and rightfully so. We just, you know, we're trying to stay out of the politics of it all, but these are the facts. Your water's fucked up, excuse my language, and we have a solution for it. You can at that point solve it or continue to shower in contaminated water and you know, cause some skin and hair issues that, you know, if you, if you have many of these common issues like eczema, dandruff, dry skin, hives, we help solve that by taking out, you know, chlorine and other contaminants that is in all of our water. So if you want to solve that, we help you do it. Yeah. Businesses that can have a, uh, can story tell to a consumer that there's a problem that you can solve for them. Um, seem to, you know, be successful, create a niche, create a following. And, you know, we talk about that a lot in brands is, you know, about the storytelling and doing it well. Yeah, I think, again, it goes back to the marketing conversation we were having earlier. Great brands are great marketers and marketing is great storytelling. And you can pick, pick Apple just got, you know, what is it? $3 trillion market cap value. They're great storytellers. They're great marketers. They, of course, they make great product, but that's always table stakes for most of us. Then, how do, how do you take that great product and make people emotional about it? That's narrative. That's storytelling. That's marketing. We believe we have a wellspring of content creation coming. Right, the shower space is a unique space. It's it's one where almost all of us. It's probably the only space you get to spend alone during your day. And it's a space of recovery. It's a space of thought. It's a space of, you know, set your day, finish your day. And that is a unique space for content creation, which we think leads to great storytelling. And it's, it's, it's very simple. 
if your water is contaminated, no matter what you're doing on the trend of CPG, beauty, the latest everything, it really doesn't have the same efficacy. If your starting point is I shower and I douse my largest organ in my body, which is my skin with all this harmful stuff. And then I put this $100 lotion on. If you can just eliminate the harmful stuff first, that $100 lotion will work better. And so it's, it's quite simple. It's just a forgotten process that we are here to educate the customer and then they can make the choice. So it's early for you. You're digitally native, selling only direct to consumer uh, digitally at the moment. Will you, is that true? Yeah, we are digital at the moment. We're going multi-channel quite quickly. We've tested a few. I mean, literally we put in three units of a store in the city. They sold them in 10 days, but we will officially go into beauty and wellness stores uh, in 2022. So we will be an omni-channel business. I, I, I think the idea that you can be a digital only company, I think is, is over, right? Like those days are gone. In the beginning, it was possible simply because you could arbitrage enough traffic at really low cost when Facebook was essentially free and figuring out their ad platform. Once they got that ad platform up and running and spinning and optimized for Facebook, essentially, they took all your margin, <laughs> you know? In the beginning, you could you could get traffic for cents. Now it's a hundred dollars. So there's your margin. You might as well go to wholesale. You know, one of the things you know that's that's very popular now are businesses leveraging tools, platforms like a miracle to create either create a marketplace on their own site or to participate in, in a wholesale uh, kind of a way, uh, selling their products through other sites. Uh, is marketplace something that you might consider at some point? Yeah, we're de- not only we're considering it, we'll be on them. So we think digital marketplaces are a great place to be. In the end, these are distribution channels, right? You have owned and operated retail. You have third-party wholesale or third-party retail, which is wholesale. You have third-party wholesale, which is digital. You have marketplaces with it, which call it let's call it Rev, rev Share, and you have your own direct. They're distribution channels. There are others, that's not all of them, but those are the sort of primary. And our job is to just be where the consumer shops. So we absolutely see marketplaces as a place. We used Miracle at Greats actually. J, J. Crew had, they wanted to test a marketplace and we were one of their first brands on the J. Crew marketplace. And Miracle was the, the SaaS that, that drove that. That was the platform that they used. So we, we think that we're, we're definitely going into marketplaces. It's about whether it's on Revolve, which has an active beauty site, or, you know, Sephora. Uh, you can argue that Sephora's marketplace is just an extension of their store, but we are going to be active on marketplaces for sure. As somebody that's you know so involved in in the digital space, do you have a, a, an opinion on what we've seen some of the larger department stores do recently, whether it be Saks or Saks Off Fifth splitting out their physical retail from their e-commerce businesses? You know, I think in the case of Saks, it's really interesting. Like, I believe the e-com business is valued higher than the totality of the total business. Is that right? Am I right in saying that? I, I don't know if that's a hundred percent accurate, but I would I would agree with you that the there's a significant premium in the value of the e-commerce business for sure. Yeah, so that 
you know, that's like M&A breakup value stuff. You know, that's I'll leave that to the bankers. But it certainly seems to make sense for Saks uh, because if you can sell off this part for a much different multiple than you could the whole thing with all your real estate and everything else, then it sort of makes sense. Look, we live in an omni-channel world. And even during COVID, I think we've seen retail, certain types of retail, really succeed. And this was never like Americans tend to tend to think in binary terms. It's either COVID or never COVID, which is false, or retail or no retail. It's not binary. It's what is the right balance for these things. And retail will continue to exist. The world was over retailed. We've seen that for now five years of just uh, you know, fifty thousand doors of all of every from every vertical have, have have shut, and they needed to because there was just too many. But that doesn't mean it's going to zero. Yeah, it's similar to uh, you know I started my career in the catalog business, and you know in those days when digital became prominent, you know all the catalogers, all the paper companies, you know they were all printers were running around. Oh my God, catalogs are dead, and and certainly although they've declined significantly, you know I think a lot of the digitally native brands that you know butted up against, geez, how do we grow? You know wound up going into paper. Um, whether it be direct mail or small catalogs or whatever. So, you know, I agree with you. We're, we're not going down to zero in stores and uh, there is a need for, you know, omni-channel, multi-channel. So uh, good, good points. Quickly on your, on your catalog thing, I think digital brands were the ones to bring back a lot of the direct mail, or at least there were services created for digital brands because it became so expensive to advertise digitally and it was relatively ineffective that, the the smart players were looking for ways to get in front of customers at one a lower cost and two a higher efficacy and mail <laughs> the analog tool uh became a really powerful way to do that and continues to be whether you're printing a full-blown book or you're just doing a single card every digital native brand uses this channel now so it's what's old is new again yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. I mean, it, I think it is effective and done done correctly. It, it's a place for, you know, for marketing spend. So good call outs. Thank you. So, you know, we end this uh, show usually with this uh, two minute drill. I ask you seven questions, one or two word quick answers that come into your mind. Uh, you're ready to play. I am. Uh, I hope I don't fail here. I'm, oh, I'm, I don't I'm, think I'm, you I'm, can I'm... fail. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, first one is a brand that you admire or that inspires you. Uh, Apple and Patagonia. Favorite app on your phone. The the baby app that the baby monitor app that I have. <laughs> that was, it's called Owlet. It's a little camera that sits over my son's crib. So that's my current favorite. <laughs> okay, oh, we'll come back and do this in five years, and uh, hopefully that's not going to be your favorite app. Anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that won't be my favorite for sure. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? It's seamless. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were? Oh, this is easy. Singing. I, I, I am a horrible singer, although I wish I could sing because it feels so empowering. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? Surfrider. If you had one superpower, what would it be? 
flying. I used to have these dreams when I was a kid that when it got foggy out, I could fly. I, these were so visceral, these dreams, like they were so real. Every time fog rolled in in the summer, I just had these dreams that I could fly and the fog was sort of my lift. So I could fly just above the fog, but not too far. And depending on where the fog was, was how high I could fly. So if it was only fog off the ground, I could fly at five feet. If it was up to the trees, I was flying above the trees. That memory is so real that flying is what I wish I could do. I think a therapist might have something to- Yeah, look, uh, like, hey, I'll, I'll outsource all my therapy needs, uh, but it's still, it's still stuck in my head. <laughs> and the last one, other than family, what's your most prized possession? I collect watches. So I would say, not all of them, but my grandfather, uh, he bought an 18 karat gold roll Omega in Germany when he was stationed there in the war in 1945. And I have that. So that's a cherished possession. That's great. Thanks for uh, for sticking with me, Ryan. I appreciate it. There's, I, I know you do a lot of mentoring and advisory work. Um, I saw that uh, you, you do some advisory work at Attentive. Uh, I had Brian Long on as a guest uh, not long ago. My daughter happens to work there as well. So, and, and we've implemented Attentive in a number of different places. So, uh, I, I, I know that business well. So, I'm sure they're they're happy to to have somebody like you involved. I love those guys, and Brian is a, an absolute wizard. That, it, that I'm never. I'm just fascinated at the, the how they built that business uh, and where it is today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, uh, best of luck in the new business. I'll be watching. Uh, if there's anything I can do to be helpful, by, by all means, uh, feel free to reach out. And uh, you and, and your, uh, your family and the 14-month-old 14 14 uh, little boy, uh, you guys, uh, best of luck with that. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Ryan Babenzine for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Ryan spoke about finding his own path in life, taking the road less traveled. We do not need to follow the norms that society has created for us. You can take a chance, deviate from the norms, and follow what your heart and mind tell you to do. You can beat to your own drum and be successful. Number two, if you want to create your own company, it's helpful to establish the guardrails or those pillars on which you want to build the business. In Ryan's case at Jolie Skin and using his experiences at Greats, he talked about the three pillars. Have the product catered to vanity or vice, and in his case, it was vanity. The product needed to have no sizing complications, and the product would create a high frequency of use. Whatever those pillars are for your business will be, be clear to everyone involved what they are. And number three, your business can sell to consumers in so many ways, but trying to be digital only is much more difficult to accomplish today. You need to be where the customers are. Use the many distribution channels that are available to you. Offer the customer as similar of an experience as possible in each channel, but let the customer choose how they best want to interact with you. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.